Chapter 16 of The Pirate Island, A Story of the South Pacific by Harry Collingwood. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Blanche and her lover have to swim for it. Stand close against the wall, Blanche, and do not move, commanded Evelyn, as the paper torch burnt down and went out. Now, he continued, I am about to light up another of these papers, and we must utilize the light to get past this gulf if possible. It will never do for us to remain where we are. The question is, in which direction will it be most advisable for us to proceed? We must devote a moment or two to a hasty survey of the place, as far as our light will allow us, before we move. Neither the time nor the light will be wasted, and it will be better that you should turn your glance upward and away from the edge of the chasm. Your nerves will then be all the steadier when we have to make a move. Now, I am going to light up once more. Another paper was lighted, and placing himself in front of his companion, or between her and the edge of the chasm, in order to guard against the possibility of her turning faint or giddy and falling over, Lance raised the light at arm's length above his head to glance round. As he did so, the tiny flame wavered, as if fanned by a faint draught. He looked at it intently for a moment, and noticed that the wavering motion was continuous, and such as would be produced by a steady current of air flowing in the direction in which they had been proceeding. Then he knelt down and held the lighted paper close against the surface of the ground. The flame burnt steadily for an instant, and then betrayed a very slight draught in the opposite direction. Then it went out, the paper being all consumed. He thought intently for a moment, then turned to his companion and said, Blanche, dearest, we are saved. Pluck up your courage, my own love, and thank God with me for showing us a way out of this terrible labyrinth. I don't understand you, Lance, answered the girl, trembling with agitation. Are you only saying this to sustain my courage a little while longer, or do you really mean that you believe there is a chance of our emerging once more into the blessed light of day? I mean, dear, that I hope and believe we shall escape. Listen, that bit of lighted paper has revealed the presence of two distinct currents of air flowing along this passage. That means that an outlet to the open air exists somewhere. The upper current, which is the warmer of the two, is flowing in the direction of that outlet, and all we have to do is to follow in the same direction, if we can, and we shall eventually reach the opening. Then let us proceed at once, Lance, dear, please, pleaded poor terrified Blanche. I feel as though I should go mad if we remain here much longer. I have a frightful feeling urging me, almost beyond my powers of resistance, to fling myself forward over the edge of that dreadful chasm which is yawning to receive me. Oh, save me, Lance, darling, save me for pity's sake. I will save you, dear, if it is in man's power to do so, answered Lance. But you must help me by keeping up your courage. You know I cannot possibly think and reason calmly whilst you continue in this deplorable state of nervousness. Now, I will light another paper, our last, and we will move forward at once. Keep close to the wall and be ready to give me your right hand as soon as the light shines out. Another moment, and a feeble glimmer once more illumined the Cimmerian darkness. Holding the light in his right hand, Lance gave his left to Blanche, and they cautiously resumed their way. The ledge along which they were passing was about six feet wide, but a yard or two further on it narrowed abruptly, leaving a path barely twelve inches in breadth. It continued thus for a length of some twenty feet, and then widened out abruptly again, apparently to the full width of the passage. It seemed, in short, as though the terrible chasm terminated at this point. Luckily, Lance was the first to see it, and his resolution was at once taken. 
he dropped the lighted paper as if by accident, and extinguished it by setting his foot upon it. He knew that if his companion caught so much as a single momentary glimpse of the short but frightfully perilous passage she would have to make, her nerve would utterly fail her, and too probably a dreadful catastrophe would happen. So he resolved upon the hazardous attempt to get her past the danger blindfold. "'Tut! What a clumsy fellow I am!' he exclaimed pettishly, as though in reference to his having dropped the lighted paper. "'Now I shall have to expend another match. But, Blanche, your nerves are still unsteady. The sight of this threatening gulf is too much for you. I think you would do better blindfold. Give me your handkerchief, dear, and let me tie it over your eyes. I will remove it again as soon as we are past the chasm.' "'Thank you,' said Blanche. "'I really believe I should feel better "'if the sight of that dreadful place were shut out. "'I can trust to your care and courage, "'but I confess with shame that, as far as I am concerned, "'I am thoroughly unnerved.' "'Lance took the handkerchief, which Blanche put into his hand, "'and bound it gently but firmly over her eyes, "'arranging it as well as he could in the darkness "'in such a manner as to make the blinding perfectly effectual.' He then led her cautiously forward a step or two until he felt with his outstretched foot the edge of the precipice, when, bidding her stand perfectly still and to cling firmly to the irregular surface of the rock, he once more lighted the short remaining end of paper, utilizing its brief existence to note well the perilous path they had to tread. "'Now, sweetheart,' he said briskly, "'do you feel better and fit to go on?' "'Oh, yes,' was the reply, in a tone so bright and cheerful that Lance felt intensely relieved, and he forthwith set about the difficult task of getting his companion past the narrow ledge without further delay. By the last expiring gleam of his short-lived taper, Lance took one more rapid glance at the terrible pass, and then, as the thick darkness once more closed round them, he said, "'Now, dear, you must be very cautious how you move. Keep close against the rock, and take a firm hold of any projections you can find.' Do not move until you have a firm hold with both hands, nor without telling me of your intention, as I shall keep close to you and give you the support of my arm. And do not loose your hold of the rock with one hand until you have secured a firm grip with the other. Now, have you a tight hold? Then move gently along, sidewise, and keep close to the rock. The dreadful journey was begun. Slowly and cautiously the pair groped their uncertain way along that narrow ledge, each pausing until the other was ready to proceed and Lance with difficulty restrained a shudder as once during the passage he felt that the heel of his boot actually projected over the awful ledge. A dozen times he felt outwards with his foot to ascertain whether the chasm was passed or not, and at last, with an involuntary sigh of ineffable relief, he found that there was solid ground beyond him as far as his foot could reach. "'Now stand quite still for a moment, Blanche,' he said. "'I am about to light another match.' He did so, and found that they had indeed achieved the awful passage, with some six inches to spare. At his very feet still yawned the hungry gulf, but they were beyond it, thank God, and once more in comparative safety. Hastily seizing his companion's hand, he hurried her far enough away from the spot to prevent her seeing the deadly nature of the peril to which they had been exposed, and then removed the bandage from her eyes. There, he said cheerfully, we are past the chasm at last, and now you may have the use of your eyes once more. Lighting another match, the imprisoned pair now pressed forward as rapidly as circumstances would permit, taking care to keep a match always alight in order that they might not stumble unawares upon a possible second chasm or other danger. They pressed forward in silence, except for an occasional word of caution or encouragement from Lance, 
both being far too anxious to admit of anything like a connected conversation. Suddenly Lance stopped short, to his sense of hearing, acutely sharpened by the long-continued death-like silence of the place, there had come a sound, fainter than the breathing of a sleeping infant, a mere vibration of the air, in fact, but still a sound. What was it? He knelt down and placed his ear close to the ground. Yes, now he caught it a trifle more distinctly, the faintest murmur still, but with something of individuality appertaining to it. It rose and fell rhythmically, swelling gradually in volume and then subsiding again into silence. Hurrah! he shouted joyously. The sea! The sea! I can hear it! Courage, Blanche, darling. Our journey is nearly at an end. One short half-hour at most, and with God's help we shall be free. Again they pushed eagerly forward, with high hopes and grateful hearts now, and with every yard of progress the gladdening sound rose clearer and clearer still, until there could no longer be any possible mistake about it. It was indeed the regular beat of surf upon the shore. At length a faint gleam of light became perceptible upon the rocky walls in front. Gradually it strengthened, until the more prominent projections of the rock began to stand out bold and black against the lighter portions beyond. And at last, as the path curved gently round, their eager eyes were gladdened by the sight of an opening into which the sea was sweeping with a long, lazy, undulating motion, until it curled over and plashed musically upon a narrow strip of sandy beach. They both paused for a moment, with one consent, to feast their eyes upon the gladsome sight, and to restore their disordered faculties. Then they saw that the long passage or gallery within which they stood terminated at its outer end in a cavernous recess, opening apparently on a precipitous part of the shore. The floor of the passage sloped gradually down until it met the short strip of sand upon which the mimic waves were lazily beating. And a yard or two from the water's edge the sand was marked with a well-defined line of stranded weed and driftwood which indicated the inner limit of the wash of the sea. A single glance was sufficient to show that the auriferous rock had been left behind, that which now surrounded them being a coarse kind of granite. Pursuing their way, the pair soon stood upon the strip of beach. Then came the question, how were they to get out of the cavern now that they had reached its mouth? The sides rose perpendicularly, and the top arched over in such a manner that escape seemed impossible. Lance made several attempts on each side of the entrance to work his way out, but the face of the rock was worn so smooth with the constant wash of the water that the nearer he approached the entrance, the more difficult did he find it to proceed. And at last, failing to find any further foothold, he was compelled to abandon his efforts and return to Blanche, who meanwhile had been resting her tired limbs on the soft gray sand. "'Well, Blanche,' he said, "'I thought our troubles were over when I first caught sight of that opening, but it appears they are not.' There seems to be only one possible mode of escape from this place, and that is by swimming. Now, I can manage the matter easily enough if you will only trust me. The distance is the merest trifle. The water is smooth, and if you think you have nerve enough to rest your hands on my shoulders and to refrain from struggling when we get into deep water, I can support your weight perfectly well, I know, and carry you safely round to the beach, which I have no doubt we shall find at a short distance on one side or the other of the opening. It will involve a ducking, certainly, but we cannot help that, and if we walk briskly afterwards we shall take no harm. Blanche laughed. She could afford to do that now. If that is our only difficulty, it is but a trifling one, she said. I can trust you implicitly, Lance, and what is perhaps almost as important, I can also trust myself. 
I can swim a little, and if I should tire, I shall not be frightened, having you to help me. Very well, was the reply. That is better than I dared hope. Would you like to rest a little longer, or shall we make the attempt at once? Blanche announced her perfect readiness to make the attempt forthwith, and without further ado the pair straightway entered the water, hand in hand, Lance first taking the precaution to place his watch in his hat and ram the ladder well down upon his head. They waded steadily in until Blanche felt the water lifting her off her feet. When they struck out, Lance regulating his stroke so as to keep close beside his companion. The water was delightfully warm, the sun having been beating down upon it all day, and the immersion proved refreshing rather than otherwise. It took them only about a couple of minutes to reach the mouth of the cave, and then Lance began to look about him for a suitable landing place. He had expected to find a beach on one side or the other of the opening, but there was nothing of the kind as far as he could see. Perpendicular cliffs rose sheer out of the water on both sides of the opening, for a distance of perhaps a hundred yards, and where the cliff terminated the ground sloped steeply down, with huge masses of rock projecting here and there, the foot of the slope being encumbered with other rocks, which at some distant period had become detached and rolled down into the water. In bad weather it would have been death to attempt landing upon any part of the shore within Lance's range of vision, but fortunately the weather was fine and the water smooth, so they made for a spot which Lance thought would serve their purpose, and in another ten minutes succeeded in effecting a landing among the rocks, the scramble up the steep face of the slope before them was not without its perils, but this also was happily accomplished, and at last they found themselves standing safe and sound on tolerably level ground, just as the last rays of the setting sun were gilding the summits of the hills before them. Lance found that they had come out on the eastern side of the island, and as the harbor lay on the south side, he knew pretty well in which direction they ought to walk. They therefore at once set out at a brisk pace, toward a large patch of forest fringing a hill at some distance in front of, but a little to the south of them. They had not gone very far before Lance, who was keeping a keen lookout for some familiar landmark, recognized a dip between the hills as the ravine up which they had passed in the morning, and altering their course a little, they came in about half an hour to the stream, which they crossed without difficulty, and then followed it down until they reached the pool in which the first discovery of gold had been made. Thence their way was tolerably easy, though in the darkness, which had by this time closed down upon them, they went somewhat astray while passing through the wood, and in another hour they found themselves once more safely within the shelter of Staunton Cottage, thoroughly tired out with their long and adventurous day's ramble. Their entrance was greeted with exclamations of mock horror at the length to which they had spun out the day's ramble, but Blanche's pale cheeks, draggled dress, and general done-up appearance speedily apprised her friends that a contre-attempt of some kind had occurred, and their jesting remarks were quickly exchanged for earnest and sympathetic inquiries as to what had gone wrong. Whereupon Lance, having first suggested to his late companion the advisability of immediate retirement to her couch, and bespoken Mrs. Staunton's kind services in the preparation of a cup of tea for each of the tired-out wanderers, proceeded to give a succinct account of their day's adventure, the recital of which elicited frequent exclamations of wonder, alarm, and admiration, the latter being vastly increased when he produced his valuable specimens, to which he had resolutely stuck through it all notwithstanding that their weight had proved a serious encumbrance to him during his swim. Now, he said in conclusion, the net result of the day's exploration amounts to this. We have discovered a mine of incalculable wealth. 
what are we to do in the matter? There is so much gold there, in the cave, I mean, that a short period of resolute and well-directed labor will enable us to collect sufficient not only to fully recoup the underwriters for their loss through the burning of the Galatea, but also to make every individual among us enormously rich. Are we to let it lie there and trust to the future for an opportunity to come back and fetch it? Or shall we make an effort now to collect what will suffice us and trust to chance for the opportunity to carry it off with us when we go? In answer to this, everybody declared at once, without hesitation, their opinion that an attempt ought to be made to collect and carry off the gold with them. Captain Staunton very sensibly remarking that if anything occurred to prevent the safe transport of their prize home, they could then organize an expedition for a second attempt, but that it would be folly to make a necessity of this if by some extra effort on their part the business could be managed without it. This point being settled, the next question to be decided was how they were to set about the collection of the precious metal, for it was obvious that any attempt to absent themselves from their daily attendance at the shipyard would not only excite suspicion, but it might also provoke a very unpleasant manifestation of active hostility on Raleigh's part. Here Violet Dudley came to the rescue with a very practical suggestion. If you, Lance, said she, can contrive to mark the two passages out of the great central cavern in such a manner that we women cannot possibly mistake one for the other, and so go astray, we might perhaps be able to collect the gold and convey it to a suitable spot for removal and when enough has been gathered, we can take our time about transporting it down here. An admirable suggestion, Miss Studley, said Captain Staunton. That effectually disposes of one part of the difficulty, but it will never do to bring the gold here. We could not possibly convey it on board the schooner without detection, even if we were quite sure of the success of our plan for making our escape in her. Do you think, Evelyn, the pirates have any knowledge of the existence of this cave of yours? I am pretty certain they have not, was the reply. There is no sign of any human foot having ever passed over the ground before our own, and it is so eminently well adapted for a place of concealment for their booty, and indeed for themselves as well, in the event of the island ever being attacked, that I feel sure they would, had they known of it, have stocked it with provisions and in other ways have prepared it as a place of refuge. It was only by the merest accident that I discovered the spot today." and but for the fact that our search not only led us up to the head of the ravine, but also actually caused me to scale the face of the rock, it would have remained undiscovered still. A man might stand within twenty feet of the entrance without suspecting its existence, and, unless he had occasion to scramble up the rock as I did, and in exactly the same place, he would never find it. Very well, then, said Captain Staunton. What I propose is this. Since the ladies are kindly disposed to give them, we will thankfully accept their services to this extent. Let them collect the gold and convey it to the edge of the gulf or chasm which you so providentially escaped tumbling into today. Then we men must undertake the task of conveying it to the other side and stacking it up in a position from which we can easily remove it with the aid of a boat. If we succeed in securing the schooner, we shall simply have to call off the mouth of the cave and remove our booty in that way. Can anyone suggest anything better? No one could. It was therefore decided that the skipper's proposal should be adopted, especially as it left them free to alter their plans at any time, should circumstances seem to require it. This decision arrived at, the party retired for the night, most of them, it must be confessed, to dream of the wonderful cave and the equally wonderful wealth of which they had been talking. The next day was spent by all hands, Dale included at the shipyard. 
this individual had, ever since poor Bob's accident, manifested a growing dissatisfaction with himself, and an increasing amount of shame at the selfishness which caused him to live a life of idleness and comparative ease, while every one of his companions, the ladies included, were doing all they could to aid in maturing the great plan of escape. And now at last shame at his unmanly conduct fairly overcame him. And on this particular morning, he startled everybody by putting in an appearance at the same time as the rest of the male portion of the party, saying in explanation that henceforward he too should go daily to work, as he was quite sure he could be of assistance. He was, of course, assured that he undoubtedly could be of very great use if he chose, and there the matter ended. But a rather unpleasant feeling was excited when Raleigh, who was always promptly down at the beach to watch the departure of the working party, noticed and commented upon Dale's presence. "'Aha, my fine fellow,' he remarked sneeringly. "'So you have made up your mind to go to work at last, have you? "'That is very well, sire. "'You must surely have dreamed last night that I had my eye on you. "'You think, perhaps, I have not taken notice, but I have. "'And if you had not gone to work today, I should have said to you, "'Look here, my good man. "'Suppose you not work, you not eat, and I should have stopped your allowance.' but you are going to work, so now that is all right. It certainly served Dale right, but all the same it was a disagreeable sensation to the rest to feel that this sly Greek had been, in all probability, keeping a stealthy watch upon them and their movements. They inwardly resolved to be very much more circumspect in their goings out and in their comings in for the future, and they lost no time either in communicating this resolve to each other. All day long their thoughts were busy upon the subject of the gold mine, and by the time that they got back to the cottage that evening, each man had an idea in connection with it to communicate to the others. They were unanimous upon one point, which was that, after Raleigh's remark to Dale in the morning, and the espionage which it seemed to suggest, it would be most unwise for any of the male portion of the party to visit the cave during the day. Henceforward their visits there would have to be as few and far between as possible, and such visits as were unavoidable must be made during the night. With the women it would, of course, be different. They could now safely venture out every day, it was believed. And as the walk up the valley was the one which involved the least exertion, it would only appear natural that they should almost invariably take it. But, in order to disarm suspicion, in case anything of the kind happened to exist, it was deemed best that an occasional walk should be taken in some other direction until they could resume the road toward the ravine with the certainty that they had not been watched and followed. It was further agreed all round that the task of carrying the gold, when collected, over the most dangerous part of the path along the edge of the ravine was not to be thought of, especially as Captain Staunton had thought out a plan by which all danger might be completely avoided. His idea was exceedingly simple, and consisted merely in the erection on each side of the chasm of a short, stout pair of shears, connected together at their heads by a good, strong, sound piece of rope, having rove upon it a thimble with a pair of clip-hooks attached. The gold could then be put into a canvas bag suspended from the clip-hooks and, with the aid of a hauling line, hauled easily enough across the chasm to the other side. These details agreed upon, they determined to proceed with their arrangements that same night. Accordingly, as soon as the evening meal was over, the men retired to their bunks for a few hours' sleep, all, that is to say, except Dale, who, quite unaccustomed to bodily labor, felt thoroughly exhausted with his day's work, and was therefore readily excused. 
He volunteered, however, to remain up on watch until all the lights in the pirate's quarter were extinguished, and then to take a good look round the settlement, and call the others when all was quiet, a raid upon the capstan house being the first thing necessary to enable them to carry out their plans successfully. The pirates, working hard all day in the open air, were, as a rule, tolerably early birds, and by eleven o'clock that night the place was wrapped in darkness and repose. Having thoroughly satisfied himself that this was the case, and that the coast was quite clear for his comrades, Dale roused the latter and then tumbled into his own berth with the comforting reflection that he had at last taken the right course, and done something to regain that respect from his companions which he was beginning to be acutely conscious of having forfeited. Five minutes later, four forms might have been seen, had anyone been on the lookout, stealing quietly across the open space between Staunton Cottage and the Capstan House. Fortunately, no one was on the lookout, and they reached the building undiscovered, ascended the ladder, and found themselves standing in the thick darkness which enshrouded the long, loft-like apartment. Here Lance promptly produced his box of matches, and, on striking a light, they were fortunate enough to discover hanging to a nail near the door a lantern ready trimmed. This they at once lighted, and, carefully masking it, proceeded to rummage the place for such things as would be likely to prove useful to them. The place was almost like a museum in the variety of its contents, and they were not long in confiscating a dozen fathoms of three-inch rope, the remains of a coil of ratline, a small ball of spun yarn for seizings, a sledgehammer, an axe apiece, a marlin spike, a few long spike nails, which Lance decided would be capital tools for the ladies to use in picking out the nuggets, and a few other trifling matters. Then, hanging the lantern upon its nail once more, they extinguished it, and made the best of their way down the ladder again. A pause of a minute or so to look round and assure themselves that no midnight prowler was in their vicinity, and they set off at a brisk pace up the valley, lighted on their way by the clear, soft effulgence of the star-studded sky. They were not long in reaching the shelter of the dense wood at the head of the valley, and once fairly through it, they laid down the bulk of their booty where they could easily find it again, and, returning to the wood, selected a couple of young pines which they quickly felled. The branches were soon lopped off, after which they cut from the tall slender trunks four spars about ten feet in length to serve for shears. Shouldering these, they sought out the remainder of their belongings and, by this time pretty heavily loaded, continued their way into and up the ravine, arriving at last, under Lance's guidance, at the great rock which veiled the entrance to the cavern. Lance and Brooke at once scrambled up to the narrow ledge before the entrance, taking with them the ratline and such other small matters as they could carry, while Captain Staunton and Rex remained below to bend on and send up the remainder. Many hands, especially if they be willing, make light work, and a quarter of an hour sufficed to transfer everything, themselves included, to the ledge. Torches, chopped out of the remainder of the pines, were then lighted, and, once more loading up their possessions, they plunged boldly into the cavern, Lance as pilot leading the way. In about half an hour they found themselves standing in the great central hall or cavern, which, lighted up as it now was by the glare of four flaming torches, looked more bewilderingly beautiful than ever. A hurried glance round was, however, all that they would now spare themselves time to take, and then they at once set vigorously to work. The first thing necessary was to mark in a legible manner, and in such a way that the mark could be identified in the darkness if need be, 
the inner extremity of the passage through which they had just passed. Rex and Brooke undertook to do this, and as they had already agreed what the mark should be, these two began, with the aid of the sledgehammer and a spike, to chip in the face of the rock a circular depression on the right-hand side of the passage, at a height of about three feet from the ground, so that it could easily be found and identified in the dark by a mere touch of the hand. Leaving these two busily employed, Lance and Captain Staunton hurried away in search of the other passage. They soon found an opening which proved to be the right one, though a third was afterwards found to exist further along the circular wall of the cavern. The second, however, was the passage they wanted, for, on going a short distance into it, Lance's and Blanche's footprints were distinctly traceable in a thin coating of fine dust which was met with. The identity of the passage being thus established, it was marked in a similar way to the other, but with a cross instead of a circle. The marking of the two passages proved to be a long and tedious job, owing to the hardness of the rock and the imperfect character of the tools. But it was done at last, and then they set out to execute the real task of their journey, namely, the erection of the shears. Now that they had lights, the journey along the second passage to the spot where the shears were to be erected was accomplished in a trifle less than an hour. But a shudder ran through them all as, following the footprints, they saw that Blanche had twice or thrice walked for several yards on the extreme verge of the yawning chasm without being aware of it. And when at last they came to the narrowest part of the path, that which Blanche had traversed blindfold, they felt their very hair rising as they craned over the edge and heard the pebbles they threw in go bounding down until the sound of their ultimate splash in the water was so faint as to be hardly distinguishable. It was nervous work, the passage along that narrow ledge, but it had to be done, and they did it, hauling the poles across afterwards with the aid of the rope, and this part of the work successfully accomplished, the rest was not long in the doing. Another hour saw both pairs of shears erect, properly stayed, and the three-inch rope bridge strained across, with the clip hooks and hauling line attached, and, in short, everything ready for the commencement of operations. The axes and other matters were then taken back to the great central chamber, where they were left for future use, and the party made the best of their way into the open air, and thence homeward, arriving finally at Staunton Cottage about an hour before the great bell rang the summons for all hands to come forth to another day's labor. End of chapter 16